The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, to hell and back to save the world, and discounts on the Elf Home series and more. Plus, we begin our audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. This week, Tim Akers sat down with Griffin Barber to discuss Akers' new novel in the Night Watch series, Val Hellions. In the series' debut, Jonathan Rast joined up with a secret organization known as Night Watch, aka the people who keep us normal folk safe from supernatural baddies. In Val Hellions, he and his team will have to go to even greater lengths to save the world, including Minnesota. But first, the news. This month marks the long-awaited return of Tinker in Harbinger. To celebrate, we're offering discounts on all Win Spencer backlist titles. From past entries in the Elf Home series to standalone novels, there's something for everyone. From now until the end of April, get $1 off all Win Spencer ebook backlist titles. And don't forget to pick up the latest entry in the Elf Home series, Harbinger, while you're at it. Sale ends April 30th, 2022, and these discounts are good wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome. Tim Akers is the author of a number of series ranging from the epic dark fantasy with the hallowed war to a magical steampunk world with the burn cycle. He's gone on to a more urban fantasy setting with his first novel in a new series, Night Watch, which he immediately followed up for his fans with uh, Valhellions, also from Bain Books. Uh, hello and welcome, Tim. Hello, hey, how's it going? Well, pretty good, pretty good. Well, we just, just to kind of let everybody know, we've known each other for what, 10, almost 12 years now? Uh, Closer to, yeah, 13, 12 yeah, to 13. Yeah, closer to 13, yeah, so there we go. We've known each other for a little while, so if we're a little less formal this time on the <laughs> it's probably because we've known each other and interacted a few times, usually at a bar, but... Usually you know. at a bar, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but the uh, the first question I wanted to ask you, of course, is, the, is always the hardest one. It's one of the things I like to ask. What's the coolest aspect of Valhellions for you? So, actually, I have a counter question, because do you mean as a writer or as a reader? Because... Always as a reader for Bain Free Radio Hour, because we're talking to your fans. That makes sense. Okay, so um, for me, it is always, and this is true for, for most of my books, uh, uh, fight scenes, because uh, when I'm coming up with uh, the Nightwatch books, both Nightwatch, the original one, and Valhellions, I like to imagine sort of um, where the, the coolest fight scenes are going to be. Uh, and when you're doing like Norse mythology, uh, you get to you get to throw people together in, in Valhalla, right? Uh, you get to have Ragnarok appear on, uh, on a, a high school football field. That's just the sort of thing that, that the game is, or that the world is, is um, you know, part of. Um, so yeah, just the, the fight scenes and stuff. The, 
yeah, that's sort of the core of it, basically. So, uh, so did you stumble on that or did you work your way to it or did the characters dictate that or do you kind of build, I want to set a scene on a football field because that's where the glory is and uh, clearly yeah. that's what's going to happen. Yeah, usually it's what's going to look best on the page. I like, I like big cinematic scenes. That's really what it, what it really comes down to. Um, I keep a, um, a notebook of ideas, not a physical notebook, of sort of a document, a folder of things that I think are going to be kind of cool to, to work with, not just for Valhallians, but just for like all of my writing projects. And for about eight years now, I've been trying to write a story about Freya's tears, which is uh, an element of, of Norse mythology um, that are, she, she cries these tears that are theoretically uh, regenerative, regenerative um, and they can, they can bring people back to life and stuff. And I thought that's, that's a really cool thing. Um, how can I work that into a story? And so I outlined an entire spy novel about German spies infiltrating uh, Minnesota to uh, try to recover uh, Freya's tears from a, a lost Viking burial ground. I am connecting sort of the, dots in my head from having read the book now. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and sort of the, the, the descendants of Valkyries that had to protect that. And I never wrote that book, but um, ended up uh, using a lot of that for Valhellions. Like yeah. when, it, when it came time to write the Norse Nightwatch book, I'm like, uh, this is going in. This is, <laughs> this is going in. And that was one of the things that I, uh, I noted was is that it, it seemed you had quite a bit of uh, affection and deep understanding of what was going on with, the, with those uh, the Norse mythology and that kind of thing. Uh, is, uh, I, Freya is a goddess of death, right? Or Kind of, yeah. Freya actually owns half of, Valhalla is only half of the afterlife. Half the dead go to Valhalla and half the dead go to, to Freya's realm, um, Folksfanger, which is uh, the, the people's field, right? And there's not any indication in any of the, the mythology as to how you choose which way we go. We like to think of, of Valhalla as being, you know, those who die in battle. Um, it's not necessarily the case that they kind of go both ways. Um, so yeah, it's, it, she's, I can't remember whose wife she is right now, but uh, she's, she owns half of the afterlife. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> So I uh, wanted to just kind of reflect on that. Uh, when you're talking about the uh, Valkyries and that kind of thing, uh, I have a particular favorite character, but which, which character in Valhallian surprised you? Is that one of the, the, the characters for, that uh, came over from the original Nightwatch? Or uh, is it somebody new that you were like, oh, this is actually going to have to be a returning character? Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I, I don't want to drop any spoilers in this, but um, Solvig? uh became something that she wasn't like she was a throwaway character oftentimes i will get stuck while writing just um i, I don't know how to put the next words down i don't know where, where the scene's going and i'll throw in what in my mind is a throwaway piece of dialogue uh just to get the gears moving and solvig's initial appearance in the book was that she was just I needed, I needed someone to start talking that wasn't the main characters talking to each other. Right. Uh, and she has this very early inter interaction with John. And initially, like, that was, that was her entire role. And then as I wrote the book, I realized there were roles that needed to be filled that she could fill. Right. And um, 
I, I ended up rewriting a significant portion of the book just to kind of bulk her up. So yeah, she wasn't supposed to, I'm not going to say how she ends up, obviously. Yeah, but be as big as, be as, feature as largely as she did. She features largely in the story. Right. And initially was something, I mean, I do this all the time. I, I write dialogue and then end up cutting it just because it was only there to get me writing. Right. I can always tell in a book when that, when the writer has done that and not cut it <laughs> and should have. Uh, right. But uh, that's, that's, I have reams of, of scenes that are just like, Tim forgot how to write. Tim has to learn how to write again. And so this dialogue comes up and that was, that was Sullivan's origin. So. Yeah, well, and that's, that's a better solution than many people have where it's just kind of like this white room where they're discussing what's going to happen next and, and yeah. what's not going to happen because they have to talk about it because otherwise you're just feeding them all the information. Right. So yeah. that, that's a, sounds to me like it's a good uh, way to, work your way through that I, I can't remember who was it that uh uh i can't remember who it was but he, he said when you're stuck that's when the guys with the guns storm in yes <laughs> and I, I thought that was that was a great and there was a shot yeah you know that i think that was a great solution too but there's only so many times i think you can do that in one book yeah so i don't know if that would work necessarily uh do you do that at all have you have you done that at all in bell Hellions or yeah the sudden introduction of violence absolutely yeah. uh i mean that's you know, there's got to be a way for the plot to move forward in unexpected ways. And, and uh, having Valkyries crash through a ceiling or something, that's right. definitely. And yeah, that's, that, was, that was one of the cooler things about this is that the setting also, obviously, when you're dealing with uh, Valhalla and, and Valkyries, you're going to, you know, why aren't you having big battles? <laughs> you know, your, your reader's going to be like, oh, well, yeah. yeah. Well, there are. So, yeah. Of course yeah, they're exactly. going to through the ceiling and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's neat. All right. Uh, so um, I've always enjoyed your writing in Norse mythology as well. Uh, so when I read all the Norse aspects of Valhallians, I was in Valhalla myself. Um, can tell us what excited you about weaving those uh, Norse myths into the Valhallians. Uh, we kind of uh, already touched a little bit, but yeah. Well, I mean, Norse, Norse mythology is bonkers. Like it is, it is next level nuts. I mean, a, a long ship made out of toenails that's that seems insane you know uh, a giant you know wolf that is going to eat the moon at the end of the world but uh is held in place by a ribbon that is made at least in part by the whiskers of a woman's beard like that is freaking nuts uh so it's hard not to have fun with with norse mythology because it's it really is just so over the top um and and that really fits in well with the night watch world because you know the the kind of like when you look at it, you know, and you read it sort of straight, you could read it straight, you know, yeah. um, but the night watch way of doing things is, is to kind of like go a little bit overboard. So uh, it was already overboard. It was just a matter of kind of pulling it back. Um, so yeah, it's, there are just so many great scenes and images and, and stuff that, that lend itself directly to the night watch. And it's. Well, it's and then also the, the connections with uh, uh, both, some of the hidden heroes that you have that, that uh, kind of crop up uh, the veterans of, uh, of wars and that kind of thing, as well as the villains. I mean, you, you have the, the best automatic villains possible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's really kind of uh, neat to, to be able to weave that in. And those villains were huge fans of Norse and German mythology. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, like a, a lot of this goes back to my fascination. I've been doing a lot of research on, on World War II for other projects. And um, there's just so much there uh, that fits well with 
with Nazi fantasy novels that uh, it's it's really hard to stay away. Um, and I mean, a lot of the like the origins of Nightwatch in the first book, they talk about, you know, we're in World War II, we had this right. machine and we were involved in the D-Day invasion and stuff. And it's still uh, left kind of in question as to how that all worked out. Right. And then it's some of those things are answered, but there's bigger questions asked as well during Bell Hellions, which I yeah. admired. It was really well done as far as the because the throughput is basically you have a big mystery going on is what's going what's behind all this. Right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you start to answer some of the questions that were asked in the first book. And now we get to uh, answer some other questions, but then raises to more questions, which is a very uh, organic and realistic kind of world, even though we're dealing with fantastic and urban fantasy setting i think it was really well done too well, I, um, I think one of the things i want to touch that real quickly one of the things that makes urban fantasy so good is when you can um you get that throughput right i mean the books are designed to be read you can pick up val hellions and, and read it and not have to worry about uh night watch at all I, I encourage you to please read the first book but um you know you don't you don't have to the thing that like works with with butcher stuff with the dresden files is that long-term character development and that's kind of something that i'm trying to do with with nightwatch uh reveal things but only a little bit at a time and establish long-term villains that uh you know are recurring features that that keep coming back and keep screwing with the team so well and tools that you kind of explain how they came to be in their possession as well right like speaking yeah. of toenail toenail ships and whatnot you know, yeah yeah the novelfer right that's that is a, it features heavily in book three. <laughs> it's, there's no way to not include the toenail ship. Well, what I liked about that one is this one in particular was is that in the first one it's uh, it's gross and it's nasty and everything else like that, and then something happens in this one and, and they're like, "Well, damn! I wish I had my toenail boat back." I so, wish I had. I missed the toenails. <laughs> exactly. I missed the stench and the transport. Exactly. So, yeah, that's a, a really cool way to. Uh, kind of project it, it's a character into the world it, it, it projects life into the world because you know, i haven't worked in patrol cars for many years certain patrol cars had a funk yeah I imagine. And, but but they were also either actually more powerful or they had no power depending on how old they were if they'd blown a cylinder that kind of stuff so right. I, I really admired that that kind of world building uh, intrinsic to it so and i i don't imagine that the the norse well maybe they did did the norse uh, describe it as being a, a stank boat too that it was they did not know no. okay. <laughs> the great a great yeah. honor having your toenails <laughs> included of, like, of extrapolating what it must smell like right yeah <laughs> I mean, you know, it was a long time ago. Nobody took showers back then, right, so maybe yeah. they didn't notice. You right. never know. Especially, yeah, and then you cut, you combine that with seawater being wet most of the time. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Ugh, this is awful. I just ate lunch. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I'm here for here to help everybody out. Uh, so uh, again, I, I'm a big fan of mysteries, and both Night Watch and Bell Hellions have strong mystery elements, and that no one knows who's behind the big bad. Um, was the mystery a natural fit for the story itself or something you saw as an intrinsic part of any urban fantasy title? I, I don't know that it's an intrinsic part of urban fantasy. I do think that uh, it lends itself particularly well because um, you always have a small group of people trying to figure out something non-epic, right? I mean, it's, it's epic still, it's Ragnarok, but uh, you're not marshalling armies and you're not taking the one ring and going to Mount Doom or anything. Um, 
the, the thing that makes urban fantasy interesting is this combination of uh, the real world and the fantastic or the really sort of awe-inspiring um, fantastic elements occurring on a street corner or in a Volvo. And right. uh, that's, yeah. you know. Or a football field. Yeah. Or a football field, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, the end of this book, Ragnarok, does in fact occur in the middle of a high school football field. Um, and in the in the first book, the original fight occurred on the soccer field. I might have something against sports. I don't know. I'm going to have to sports examine ball? that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, the, the point is, like, I don't, I don't know that it's intrinsic to it, but I do think it really fits well, especially with with the, the system. Like, right. the team's job is to keep people out of out of the real world, and so you got to figure out who your villain is and what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it and how they're trying to do it, and then how the team is going to figure out about it and what steps they're going to take to to resolve it. Right. Um, so yeah, it, mystery does kind of like lend itself to it. Plus, during the pandemic, I watched a lot of mystery. Like we we got a, a an account to Acorn TV, which is a bunch of British, yep. Australian, and Scottish and Welsh. Yeah. And there's the Welsh make amazing mystery movies. I don't know what it, or shows. I don't know what it is about about Wales, but uh, they they do they do the mystery thing really well. Yeah, it, it's it's funny that you know because. If you were to believe everything that's ever been put out, and as far as police officers are concerned, you'd think that we were all always handling all sorts of murders, and you know, it's, right. it's all high, high speed, low drag stuff instead yeah. of just like a grind. <laughs> and if you were to believe the the British uh, BBC presentation of of any English village, it's a murder a week. Yeah. Oh, I know. Do not do not go to small villages in England. No, not they are hard, murder capitals between the between the priest the nun and the uh, the actual cops you're going to have at least three murders a week exactly. <laughs> no matter how small your village is constant stream of dead people yeah <laughs> or people being murdered <laughs> so yeah they uh I, I love them too i mean brother Catfile is one of my favorite yeah. ever um and then there's there's a really good italian series too uh i can't remember the name of it um but he's a it's, it's set in sicily and my wife used to live there so mm. they have that kind of thing going and it, it's a little bit better because it's like kind of most of the island and then there's the mafia angles on everything as well i can't oh yeah 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 but um it's getting off of that for a moment and kind of returning to sicily uh because it was a major uh, battlefield of world war ii uh i really like the veteran zombies uh, and one in particular but uh, you know percy um Without going too deep into spoiler land, what inspired that? Um, so it's a combination of two things. Like I said earlier, I, I've been doing a lot of research on World War II stuff for other other projects. And um, I don't know, I'm an idiot American. And so like I had not really done a lot of reading of stuff before the, the American intervention, before US got involved. Um, and so reading about like Dunkirk, like in detail, not just I'm aware of what Dunkirk is, but like sitting down and reading the whole history of that uh, and like the Winter War and, and all the stuff that went on in, in Norway and, and, and the, the Ministry of uh, Ungentlemanly Warfare. Um, it just sort of, it fascinated me and I wanted to include some of that in, in the book. Uh, the other elements, and this is uh, less noble, um, was P.G. Wodehouse. Uh, when other people's parents and fathers were reading to them uh, 
regular normal human bedtime stories. Uh, my dad was reading to me P.G. Wodehouse like in its entirety since I was a little kid, like before I could even begin to understand what was oh, going on. So now like, I understand some of the, oh yeah. Yeah, I know. It's there's a, tra a trail you can follow in my history as, as to how I ended up the way I am. But um, so like Jeeves and Wooster and Blandings and all of that is is that's part of my my history. I got into all of that before Monty Python was even a thing. And so a lot of that, like that kind of humor and stuff figures into Nightwatch in general. But I really wanted to bring, you know, the very British zombie into into the game and just sort of uh, play around with i keep saying game i mean book you know what i'm talking about it's it, yeah interchangeable yeah. in this particular instance it is the game because right yes. they're trying to figure out what's going on and that kind of thing so um and just uh, as a zombie it was just one of those special uh powers of of the big bad that's going on or uh, oh yeah yeah i i needed somebody who was directly related to um uh the totem shrek you can see in the cover there that sword Yep. Uh, that is the, the Totten Shrek, uh, the fear of the dead. Yep, right there. Um, that uh, was made by uh, Nazi occultists during World War II and uh, is a, it's a necromatic sword. It's, it creates zombies. Anybody who dies by that sword comes back to life. And it got deployed during the Battle of the Bulge, is the original story uh, that I sort of worked with. And now it's coming back. So. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the cooler things I liked. And one of the, one of your battle scenes was the whole difference between guys who are trying to kill you with a bladed weapon versus guys that are just trying to score a touch. Yeah, uh, that was a really neat uh, way to to get inside the heads of the, the various combatants. So. Well, and it, it leads back to um, there's a lot of Hema stuff, historical European martial arts uh, in this. And the difference between one of the things that, that the main character, John, in the first book has to learn is the difference between. Yeah, he, keeps um, getting, he keeps getting killed. Keeps getting killed. Yeah. yeah uh, he doesn't know how to right. fight. Actually and, cut somebody. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Cut somebody. You're just a dang point, you know. Uh, and I did a very early version of him. Red, black, black, black. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did a very early version of him in, in college. We just made PVC. Uh, and pipe insulation and duct tape swords and just beat the crap out of each other and uh we we were playing the game as if we were actually trying to kill each other and the person who did the best was this girl named faith who um she just held the sword in front of her and went bunk, bunk, and she just followed you across the field i'm like yeah she understood the rules right yeah exactly so yeah, it's and so in this in this book it comes back to just playing for touch again, uh, which leads John kind of prepared. But. Right. Once he recognizes it. Yeah. So uh, in a similar vein, because you know I was talking about how I really enjoyed the veteran zombie. Uh, which character from Hellions would you want to avoid, like the plague, and why? Um, Fenrir, right. He's just a big nasty dog, and he's obsessed with the moon, uh, and is not going to give you, you know, the time of day. Um, trying to figure out, uh, yeah. Mainly, I don't know. Fenrir is probably my best answer. I kind of liked Fenrir, but I guess it's I, I use a lot of fun. That's yeah. the problem. Like a lot of these characters are fun. Oh no, um, you know who it would be is Mr. Valhalla because. Okay. Uh, first of all, he's naked. 
right? <laughs> and secondly, he's just super intense, right? Uh, just to give you know the the viewers an idea of what I'm talking about here, um, Valhalla has they're, they're, they run annual beauty pageants for the the Vikings who are there. Uh, they they saw a beauty pageant in Kansas City at one point the Valkyries did, and we're like, yeah, we're doing that. Uh, and so the the opening scene of you you arrive in Valhalla and, and you think you know everything's going to be Valhalla, right? And there are guys playing volleyball and like little bikini shorts and and uh, dudes you know flexing and stuff. And uh, it's it's meant to be you know super over the top, uh, but yeah, the the last year's champion just stands at the gates and as the participants arrive, he just leans over them and yells, "You are not worthy! You are trash! I will wear your entrails like a crown!" Everyone's just like, "All right, dude, chill out." He was pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. So I think I would I would avoid him just yeah. on first. Really, because it's you know, I mean, he's probably just your favorite jock from high school, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, high school. I loved it. So that being said, which character would you like as an ally? Um, it would be a cross between either Chessa or St. Matthew. Because um, who doesn't want to hang out with, uh, you know, a hyper-competent elven warrior princess? Uh, and then St. Matthew, he just seems like a good guy to get a beer with and talk theology, which is sort of like, that's my box. That's right. <laughs> that's my, my, my zone. Uh, and get drunk and talk about, you know, God. It's, that's core to my my understanding of how things work so sounds like uh, you're still that sounds like my college days that's, that's yeah probably, probably why i didn't graduate yeah i i did eventually <laughs> it just took a little longer than it was supposed to <laughs> uh, so uh it, as an ally and then is there any instance or domain from valhallians that you would like to live in or visit i mean i wrote i wrote john's domain kind of as my ideal thing so john lives in a cabin uh, in a very scary forest. Uh, that almost literally is my childhood. Um, and, uh, you know, all of the, the comforts of home, but also kind of the excitement and the weirdness and the creepiness just outside the door uh, and, and the opportunity to kind of like wander those primeval um, forest lands. That's, that's definitely what I would want to spend my time doing. Uh, as frightening as it is, it's just a lot of fun. Right. Yeah, because it is like everybody else I loved it when everybody else finally comes to his domain. They're like, this kind of sucks, man. We don't want to be here. This is awful. This, why are you living here? Yeah. 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 Jessa lives in like a forest city or a, a tree city with half naked elves and, and everybody's uh, pretty. Yeah, everything's beautiful and great and stuff and you go to john's and everyone's trying to kill you and the trees eat you and, and yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> so <laughs> the soup's good <laughs> yeah that's right the soup is good we got to remember that one so uh you know and how do you um just uh, again i guess probably from both of them but where did that come from that whole I, I have to live in this the the domain to power my my magic that kind of thing how did that um yeah, that fell out of the sky and hit me in the head. Um, I, it was literally a matter of, I was writing a different book. Like after I finished the last trilogy, I did a pitch sheet for my agent and we, through mutual discussions, figured out what I was going to write next. And I started working on that. And then one morning I woke up and couldn't get back to sleep and just lay there in bed. And this whole idea of, wouldn't it be cool if, um, First of all, like fantasy stuff was real. And in order to interact with it, you had to live 
that medieval life. You had to do Red Fair for serious. And uh, you had to avoid contamination and all this stuff. And just ideas kept rolling through my head of like how it would work and, and stuff. And I, I wrote the first draft of Nightwatch, I think in like 10 weeks, which is a nutty um, pace for me. Uh, and I mean, we just, we both just lived through the Brandon Sanderson thing where he wrote five books in a year with, without telling anybody, but yeah. I wrote a book in a year without telling in, anybody. In addition to his other work. Uh, in addition to his other work, yeah. So, but that, that was my, I wrote one book in five, in 10 weeks, which is really great for me and I'm, I'm super proud of it. But um, I did it without telling anybody and, and just kind of dropped it on my agent. And he, he wasn't thrilled with it initially because he was expecting something else. Um, but, you know, it, it eventually, so the, the basic idea came down, came from that, just one morning sitting around going, what, what, what if Renfair was real? What if, you know, you were going there and, and things happened and uh, you found out that, that all this time and energy that you spent doing Renfair stuff was, was for a greater purpose. So basically it. Very cool. A little harder questionnaire. I probably should have maybe put that up in the earlier. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> Um, so, so moving on from that to a little bit easier stuff, you and I share an interest in old school tabletop role and war, war gaming, big battles and the group dynamic of a party of adventures with all their internal pressures uh, figure prominently in both Nightwatch and Valhelians. Um, was this baked into the idea uh, when it came to you or was it something that grew out of your work with the stories? Um, the initial idea was focused entirely on, on Renfair stuff, but as I went along, uh, I was incorporating more and more gamer nerd stuff um, into it, and it it then became you know a, a prominent part of it. Uh, we were discussing before we started here, like all of my free time is spent playing World of Warcraft. Like my wife plays; it's what we do with all of our free time, uh, and so it it in inevitably gets gets built into it. Um, I, I think um, I didn't want it to become sort of this typical gamer becomes this D&D character thing. But I also didn't want to run away from that because um, that really is like, you know, it's something I understand really well. D&D is kind of big right now. It wasn't when I was a kid, but it's it's having a moment. Uh, when we were so, a kid. <laughs> when we were kids. It was, we were kids, right, yeah. It was it was a, certain, a big thing for certain kids. <laughs> right, yeah. It was, Everybody else were busy social life. doing some other stuff. No social life. <laughs> But, uh, so yeah, I didn't want to run away from that, but I didn't want it to sort of become a little too, uh, overwhelming. So I, uh, I definitely, um, it was definitely part of the, part of it, you know, going in, uh, especially like as I built Nightwatch itself, I'm like, well, we got to have a tank. we got to have two DPS. we got to have a healer. Uh, so what are those characters going to be, you know, in the game or in the, in the book, again, the game. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that, that, sort of when john and do, we, do we unpack those those statements or those names for the oh yeah sure so a typical gaming group has three roles uh there is uh, the dps the damage per second the rogues and warriors and uh mages all the guys whose job it is to uh throw damage at, at the enemy uh you have to have a healer which unfortunately in like DD is the most boring role uh and in uh, traditional video games is one of the more complicated roles 
one of the more fun roles, I think. Um, and then a tank, the guy whose job it is to absorb the damage, to distract uh, the enemies and stuff. And so when John starts this journey, he thinks he's going to be one of the sword-wielding hero guys. Well, that's where all the glory is in DPS, right? All the glory is in the warriors and the, and the mages, and it, it's all the really impressive stuff. And John gets stuck as the tank, which is not glorious. It's it's just standing around getting punched in the face and being like, now I'm good. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Hit me again, you idiot, you know, kind of stuff. And, uh, and so sort of having to overcome his uh, disappointment with that. He gets the super magical world, but also he's the most boring of all of, of the roles uh, is, you know, part of his thing, but yeah. So it's, it's interesting too, that you, because the one thing you did with uh, Matthew, especially is you made him anything but boring. Uh, he's, he pretty much fascinates the heck out of me every time, every scene he's in, he, he tends to steal it because he's, he's so kind of like, I'm a good guy. It's good natured. And, you know, but he's, uh, <laughs> the literally is like the sun <laughs> looking yeah. at him is, is intense so yeah. uh I, I think that was really uh, interesting that you you know talk about the the most and again that even for the tank your main protagonist john uh is uh, he he has that disappointment but he also has a sharp tongue so he, it, part of the fun with listening to any dialogue he's participating in is talking smack i mean especially the, the his whole his names for the bad guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> the edge lord <laughs> yeah oh yeah, yeah. really fun a really fun edge lord <laughs> yeah in the short story that i wrote for for the release of al hellions one of the bad guys or the main bad or a bad guy is this elf and uh i can't remember what his name is exactly um it's this long sort of elvish tolkien sounding name and john's like jelly dandelion like that's your name <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome and that's very also uh I don't, I don't want it's very american like it's like yeah. i can't understand what it is your name is so i'm just going to assign you a name right uh, yeah. you know that, that kind of sounds a little bit to me like it and also i get to mock you while i do it so well yeah the sword you know the sword of this thing is called the totenshrek yeah, yeah. So it's like tater tots <laughs> yeah and he, he kind of settles on a name after a few encounters with it and and uh finally goes with that, that that's one of the things i really appreciated about the that aspect of the uh, story is the uh, the fact that he's uh, he knows he's got this uh, uh, challenge ahead of him, and yet he's going to go ahead and and uh, mock it, which is another thing that a tank does. A tank attracts the the attention so that it beats on him. He yeah. gets punched in the face, and none of the glass cannons that he's uh, fighting for or uh, defending get hurt as well. Yeah, yeah. His magical ability really is just pissing the other guy off. Yeah, and it's not necessarily even magical. It's just what the, the words that are coming out of his mouth. Right, exactly. <laughs> Quite cool. Um, so, uh, and on a personal hope note, uh, dare I hope that there might be a Nightwatch or Valhane's game somewhere on the horizon? <clears throat> so I, I, will, I will say that I would love to do like a D&D &D or similar setting for it, but the magic system is so different and, and stuff, it would be a little challenging. Um, that I often do gamify my writing. Like I have a, a system that I'm working on right now that I've informally called Sword Mage. Uh, and I wrote the game first, you know, because mm -hmm. um, I guess the viewers may not know this, but 
most of my early writing and ongoing writing has been in, in the tabletop role-playing game industry. My first uh, credits were in the 90s with, with um, White Wolf Game Studios, yeah. yeah. And so game design and stuff is just kind of um, my native language. Um, and so uh, it helps me to understand a world better if I can imagine the, the game that it would that would be set in that world in some right. way. So yeah, I've absolutely done that with, with, with Nightwatch and Valhellions. Um, I've not formalized anything. Uh, I would, I'd, I'd love to, um, if there's demand for it, I would do it tomorrow, but, um, it's, it's a matter of like what I have time to do really. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I would, I would love to, to license it or, or just design it myself and, and have it be a thing. Um, I have a lot of problems with 5e. The big problem is that 5e is like the, the Lenga Franca. It's, it's, it's the common tongue of, right. of gaming right now. And it's really hard to write a system that's not that. I know you play Warhammer Fantasy, yeah. which is a great system. Um, but if I were to walk down to my local game store and be like, hey, guys, let's play some Warhammer Fantasy, I'd have 35e players being like, oh, I don't understand. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of, you almost have to like work down to that level. But anyway. Yeah, no, and and I was the reason why I brought it up is because knowing that you worked for White Wolf back in the day, and you know their Mage game had that that whole reality is going to bite you in the butt if you're uh, you know doing things you shouldn't do that in front of a lot of people. The worst the the you know kind of thing is, which is kind of similar to what's goes on with Nightwatch as far as when the other comes into our world. Yeah, I won't say I stole that, but <laughs> I am familiar with that mechanic. <laughs> But it's, you know, also it's very different as far as like, because your protagonists are not, uh, they're not in this world and, and doing stuff, you know, they're of this other world is where their power comes from, where they're actually able to do it. So right. yeah, I, 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 uh, I dig it. I think that was, that's really cool. I'm also pretty proud of myself as a reader for having noted that, <clears throat> but you know, and yeah, no, a lifelong so. gamer too. <laughs> All right. Um, so is there anything else you wanted to talk about within Valhelians that, that, you know, you think I missed or that you wanted to just uh, brag a little bit about? No, I, you've, you've really hit a lot of the interesting stuff. And I'm, I'm concerned about uh, like getting into spo spoiler territory. I will say that a portion of this book is a love song to the Midwest. And uh, I have a lot of friends who live in Minnesota and I'm concerned they're going to be angry at me. Like I've, I, I'm, I know they have the book and they've not yet responded to it uh and so i'm i'm nervous as to like how i because I, I always make fun of the things that i love right and right. so at one point they as you know go to minnesota and, and do stuff there and i make a lot of you know midwestern jokes i'm curious if like they even make sense to people who have not been to minnesota i mean i, I uh, having been there i, I can't uh, i can't certify whether yeah. or not it's uh, it's going to be accurate or not yeah. yeah so we'll we'll see but it's there's a lot of uh, a lot of love for for the midwest and stuff that that's in there um so hopefully well that, that was one thing we haven't touched on too is that uh, if those of you that read night watch uh and before you read this uh, you'll be gratified to know that there's some advancement in the uh relationships from uh night watch between chesa and john there's there's some, still more tension uh, but there's also like a pretty big step that they go over, uh, a threshold that they go over that uh, haven't haven't uh, accurately uh, 
been able to assess and they still don't get to assess it at, in Valhagen. So I'm hoping in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth books, we're still going to get more of, of that dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their dynamic is, is a significant portion of originally like Chessa wasn't in book one. I, I wrote her back in after I had written about half the book and like, hey, everything's too easy for him. It needs to be significantly more awkward. How do I do that? Oh, I'll add an ex-girlfriend. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Ex-girlfriend witness of all the stuff that's going on. Yeah, perfect. yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, and so uh, that was, uh, you know, a big, a big part of the development of the world and the ongoing development of the world. Um, the notes for book three, you know, include a lot of, so what's, what's up with John and Chessa? Uh, cool. And how that, how that is advancing and not advancing and what steps they take forward and backwards that kind of stuff so it's not a love story but it's it's still a kissing book sometimes. that's why i call it a relationship right exactly because <laughs> it's also true with uh the uh the new dps uh, I, i'm drawing a blank on his name right now but gregory the, yes gregory <laughs> who who is john's just like not really liking him very much at all and <laughs> throughout the book but yeah especially at the beginning of the book oh yeah yeah, there's a lot. So there's a, I don't want to say too much about book three, but um, for reasons uh, that are clear in the book, uh, the three of them end up stuck together for a oh. significant portion of the book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's sort of the, the, the development of, of their friendships, relationships, and, and animosities uh, ongoing. So, and that is that, uh, you know, we, we touched a little bit on it, but is that from, uh, is that an urban fantasy kind of trope thing, or is that more just like you know you wanted to kind of get at these characters and what they would uh, yeah, do in these circumstances? I think it's more of a character thing. I I just wanted to make John uncomfortable, and this is a great way to do it. You know, put him in in a room with uh, every girl's dream and his ex girlfriend, and right. just see how that goes, uh, and just leave him there. And, and well, and him. every guy's dream too. I mean, so many guys' dreams as many far as dreams. Valkyries are concerned. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, that kind of thing. So, uh, uh, I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. I think you're falling into place again. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, penultimate question. Uh, what, aside from the considerable raw entertainment value, uh, do you hope the readers carry with them uh, long after reading Val Hellions? Um, so, I'm not a, a didactic writer. I don't want to, I don't want the reader to know that they're learning a lesson when I'm um, talking to them. I want them to enjoy a story. And if they learn something out of it, that's me being clever or subtle or something um, and not clumsy. So I, I will say um, the point of John's character is this idea that heroism is more about overcoming fear than it is about not being afraid. Um, sort of as a blanket statement, I find too many heroes like highly competent kind of infallible god men uh, who mow through their foes with little trouble and, and it's just that always frustrates me and so i i wanted to tell a story from the perspective of somebody who might not be cut out to be a hero but doesn't have a lot of choice about it um it, it interests me more uh what ordinary people do when put in difficult and uh trying situations Right. Um, so that's John's long-term story arc. Um, I, I know, like I've, you, you never read your own reviews, but I, I know a lot of people 
got into Nightwatch. Not a lot of people. There were people who got into Nightwatch and were like, this guy's, you know, he's a coward. He's an idiot. I don't like this. Uh, they, they wanted more of a, I guess, alpha male kind of guy. And I wanted to write more of a nervous nerd who suddenly, who plays at being a knight and then all of a sudden is, and yeah. maybe wasn't ready for that. Uh, and so the development of that character is, is kind of uh, important in the long term. So that's, I guess, if I'm trying to teach anything, it's that heroes are, are just people who right. eventually stop stop believing their own bad press, their own internal bad press, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely does. And it's true. I mean, for me, in any case, it's, it's definitely you, the, the hyper-competent guy who's, you know, say, uh, driving around the, the uh, racetrack at 240 miles an hour, you know, and risking it all, you know, his, his behind and the million-dollar vehicle that he's in, he's not half as heroic as the guy who's driving a, a lump of caca through city streets trying to get it to the so he can get emergency services to somebody who's been injured that kind of thing yeah um, and the levels of training that they have and risking their behind and experience they may be commensurate but the what they're risking it all for is an entirely different matter yeah. uh, and so yeah I, I get that and i think it's uh, it's an admirable um quality to strive for in, in communicating and i think you're you're reaching it because the uh Again, that's one of the things about John, because also he, while he talks a lot of caca, for want of a better word, yeah. uh, he, he, he does so to make himself, you know, kind of, to kind of trigger himself too. He's not just trying to make the other person attack him, yeah. which is heroic in itself. He's also trying to make sure that he can uh, amp himself up to do the hard thing that is, yeah. is necessary to overcome the, the, uh, the action. So I think that's really, really neat. And I think your fans are going to really appreciate that. Um, Cause that's the other thing. I mean, when people complain like you're saying about reviews and that kind of stuff is like, okay, yeah, you can have your vanilla or you can have the salt, sweat, tears, yeah. blood, the more realistic for me, uh, uh, heroic thing. That's one of the reasons why you're talking about like war, my playing Warhammer kind of thing. I'm not a huge fan of D and D cause it's so bloodless. Oh, yeah. uh, compared to, to Warhammer where <laughs> yeah, critical tables, I got to have them read some critical. <laughs> the only thing that exceeds Warhammer for critical tables is role master. Role I was going to say, I started in role master. Yeah. I started in Merp and then I went to role master. I just said, yeah. our, our friend Kyle just sent me a meme where it's like, there's a bunch of difficult things being talked about. And it, the, <laughs> the ender for the meme was, Oh Yeah. I used to convert D&D characters into Rollmaster. No! <laughs> There's nothing more impossible than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in any case, uh, going on, so we, we asked the last, this penultimate question. And the last question, uh, are there any conventions this year that we can uh, hope to find you and catch up with you, maybe have a drink with you at the bar uh, this year? And what other uh, work do you have in the pipeline for your fans? Sure. So... Uh, I'm probably one of the very few people who didn't mind the pandemic lockdown because I'm a hermit. Um, and I liked not having to come up with an excuse to not leave my house. But um, part of the job is, is going to, and actually I really enjoy conventions, obviously. That's, that's where we met. That's where I, I've had some of the best times of my life. But um, it is, uh, this year I, I'm a little kind of uh, in the lurch. So I'm going to Worldcon because it's in Chicago. I live in Chicago for some reason. And 
I, I so I'm going to be in Chicago this year. It's probably the last Worldcon I'm going to attend for a very long time. Um, I'm just I don't want to get into Worldcon stuff, but it's yeah. it's frustrating. Right. Um, so I did that, and uh, I'm going to Adepticon, which is a very large uh, wargaming slash role playing game convention here in Chicago. Um, but I'm really just there to do. Um, I've got tournaments and stuff that I'm going to be doing and to sort of make physical contact with some of the professionals that I, I work with in the industry. Uh, Weird Games, the guys who do Malifaux, have just been feeding me work over the course of the last four or five years. So every chance I get to, and the, the way that I got that job was by walking up to the booth at Adepticon and being like, my name's Tim, here's my CV. Uh, yeah, that's me. one thing we haven't talked about much but the, the with any of the authors as far as I'm concerned is the you know, that's where conventions, they're not just good for the authors to interact with fans. They're good for the authors to interact with everybody. Yeah, I think um, 99% of the value of a convention for authors is is meeting other authors, meeting professionals. Yeah. Most of, there was a World Fantasy in Madison. Uh, there was a, a tour books party, room party. And I met, so I met Brandon Sanderson for the first time. So I met my agent and I met one of my future editors, Lou Anders, and a guy named Daryl Gregory, who, you know, Daryl, he's, yep. he's good people. Uh, and, you know, within 10 minutes, I met all of those people for the first yeah. time. Well, and, really and we met, we met at World Fantasy in Ohio. World Fantasy Columbus, yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, th those making those connections is, is, I don't want to say critical, but very important for, for Well, it's nothing else to meet your tribe. Right. Yeah. Uh, We're and, all spread apart <laughs> yeah. and, and there's uh, no other way to, to meet yeah. them. And, Especially for, you know, the, the, for the fans, you know, to be, a, uh, be able to talk and interact with somebody who's created something that you enjoyed. Uh, yeah. And in this case, you know, the Valhellions and, and moving forward from there and knowing a little bit of the history of, of the games that are in, involved, that kind of thing. Um, you know, for me, Chuck Gannon, a bunch of other Bane authors that I've met, Dave Drake, uh, all of them were through conventions that I uh, first encountered them, including yourself, Daryl, yep. uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm kind of bummed that you're not going to be going to Liberty Con or Dragon Con. Well, uh, I'm, but, I'd like to try to get to Liberty Con. It's sold out. Yeah, <laughs> like, it sells out in like five minutes. It's right. ludicrously fast. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to try to get there. Um, I have a lot of family in, in Western North Carolina, obviously still. So um I'd like to try to get there, but I don't currently have plans to do it. Um, uh, not going to Gen Con this year because it's kind of a show. Um, not really planning to do that. Next year is the year that I'm really kind of, you know, I'm going to do Dragon Yeah, Con. hopefully we'll be able to, we'll be able to dug, dig out from underneath all the current exactly. COVID restrictions. It'll be a little yeah. safer to, to know that you're going to be able to do that. I want to go to um, Fantasy so, next year. That's sort of one of my goals because it's in Raleigh and uh, I need to like, I want to start getting hooked back into Carolina fandom because my long-term goal is to move back there and I uh, haven't gotten to it yet, but I want to start making those connections sooner rather than later. So what about work? What have you got coming up? Contracts are weird. Um, so I, I don't want to say specifically, but I'm writing the third Nightwatch book right now. Um, I have an epic fantasy novel that was the book that I was supposed to be writing when uh, I wrote Nightwatch, uh, and that's coming out soon. Um, that's got an offer, but the contract's not not signed yet. I don't know what order those books are going to come out. That's on. It's 
sort of on Bain to decide which how they want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the, the two main things. Uh, the fantasy book is, you know, I have an entire world in my head. Uh, yeah. Whether it's, you know, ends up being more than just a standalone that I've written, we'll see. Um, but well, that's, then, that's one of the the kind of the guiding lights I've had was is that don't don't write a series, write a book, write a book, complete book, and, and see if it sells. Book. And if, if it does, then then you can go ahead and see what you can do to make it a series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leave the seeds there, but but don't you know push it out. I, I will say like there's a throwaway line in in Nightwatch uh, about Nick Tesla, and that is the origin for book three. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm still seeding things out of that initial burst of energy from Nightwatch. Well, sometimes, I mean, uh, some, some folks have done it unintentionally. So it's good that, you know, you're, you put it in there and uh, can sit and rest and everybody can look, and look forward to having a third or fourth or fifth or sixth yeah. book. We'll or, see. I hope it'd be nice. Yeah. It'd be nice. So we'll see. That would be nice. All right. So uh, you have some things under contract, no short story work or something coming out or anything? like that um i i suck at short stories every time i write a short story they're like i, oh, I, I disagree a, i disagree i've read your short stories they're good <laughs> well i i struggle with them let's put it that way um yeah. i've got a bunch of stuff um again weird games has hired me and i signed an nda and uh all right i'll like, get off of it since it's nda land we'll, i'll get off yeah yeah <laughs> i'm doing something for them i can't say what it is okay. um but yeah that's that's pretty much it um okay. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show and talking to us about Valhellions. Uh, once again, folks, Tim Akers, Valhellions going to be available on uh, the 18th, I think, or this will be up on the 18th. The book oh, is yeah. Valhellions is in stores. The book, Valhellions is actually in stores yeah. where Barnes and Noble has actually figured out that they can, you know, bring it in. Stock the them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's great talking to you. And uh, um, I hope everybody enjoyed this uh, edition of uh, the Bain Free Radio Hour. Bye. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Audible Frontiers presents Cobra, written by Timothy Zahn and narrated by Stefan Rudnicki. Trainee, 2403. The music all that morning had been of the militant type that had dominated the airwaves for the past few weeks. But to the discerning ear, there was a grim undertone to it that hadn't been there since the very start of the alien invasion. 
So when the music abruptly stopped and the light show patterns on the plate were replaced by the face of Horizon's top news reporter, Johnny Moreau clicked off his laser welder and, with a feeling of dread, leaned closer to listen. The bulletin was brief and as bad as Johnny had feared. The Dominion Joint Military Command on Asgard has announced that, as of four days ago, Adirondack has been occupied by the invading Troft forces. A hollow sim map appeared over the reporter's right shoulder, showing the seventy white dots of the Dominion of Man, bordered by the red haze of the Troft Empire to the left and the green of Minthisti to the top and right. Two of the leftmost dots now flash red. Dominion star forces are reportedly consolidating new positions near Palm and Iberiand, and the ground troops already on Adirondack are expected to continue guerrilla activity against the occupation units. A full report, including official statements by the Central Committee and Military Command, will be presented on our regular newscast at six tonight. The music and light pattern resumed, and as Johnny slowly straightened up, a hand came to rest on his shoulder. They got Adirondack data, Johnny said without turning around. I heard, Pierce Moreau said quietly. And it only took them three weeks. Johnny squeezed the laser he still held. Three weeks. You can't extrapolate the progress of a war from its first stages, Pierce said, reaching over to take the laser from his son's hand. The Trofts will learn that controlling a world is considerably more difficult than taking it in the first place. And we were caught by surprise, don't forget. As the star forces call up the reserves and shift to full war status, the Trofts will find it increasingly hard to push them back. I guess we might lose either Palm or Iberiand as well, but I think it'll stop there. Johnny shook his head. There was something unreal about discussing the capture of billions of people as if they were only pawns in some cosmic chess game. And then what, he asked, with more bitterness than his father deserved. How do we get the Trofts off our worlds without killing half the populations in the process? What if they decide to stage a scorched-earth withdrawal when they go? Suppose— Hey, hey, Pierce interrupted, stepping around in front of Johnny and locking eyes with him. You're getting yourself worked up for no good reason. The war is barely three months old, and the Dominion's a long way from being in trouble yet. Really. So put the whole thing out of your mind and get back to work, okay? I need this hood plate finished before you head for home and homework. He held out the laser welder. Yeah. Johnny accepted the instrument with a sigh and adjusted his decontrast goggles back over his eyes. Leaning back over the half-finished seam, he tried to put the invasion out of his mind. And if his father hadn't made one last comment, he might have succeeded in doing so. Besides, Pierce shrugged as he started back to his own workbench. Whatever's going to happen, there's not a thing in the universe we can do about it from here. That was the first installment in our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Jaikowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Griffin Barber and to Tim Akers for sitting down to talk about Valhellions today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>